following audio is from West Pines Community Church. For more information about West Pines, visit us online at westpines.org. You can join us live Sunday mornings at 9, 1030, or 12 in Pembroke Pines, Florida, or online at westpines.org. So if I were to ask you, what is the tallest mountain on planet Earth? The tallest mountain, I, I would guess that most of you know, the tallest mountain is... Mount Everest, of course. It is the, the tallest mountain on earth. Let me show you just a picture of Mount Everest. Here goes a picture. I love this, uh, this picture. You've probably seen a picture of it before, but I love this particular picture because that right there on the bottom is not, that's not snow, that's clouds. That's, it shows you just how towering that mountain is. And I could read you some statistics about Mount Everest just to kind of give you an idea of how tall Mount Everest. It is um, 8,800 and 48 meters high, which means that it's about five and a half miles above sea level. Now, I could read you that statistic, and I could remind you things like, um, you know, we live down here at at sea level, but if you've ever traveled to cities that are higher altitude, like Denver, or if you've ever gone somewhere, you stayed like at a top of a mountain, and you could tell like the altitude was different, and it was like maybe a little harder to breathe. Like, for example, Denver, the mile-high city, I mean, think about um, the the, uh, Mount Everest is not a mile above sea level, it's five and a half miles above sea level, and I can read you those statistics, and, you know, it's interesting, and if you're like a science nerd, you're like, okay, cool, 8,000 meters, that's interesting, but let's just bring it a little closer to home to get an idea for how high Mount Everest is. Okay, so when you get to higher altitudes, things start to happen to your body, so if you were going to try and and climb a tall mountain, um, what they say is when you get over about 3,000 meters, if your body is over 3,000 meters in altitude, you're, if you don't handle yourself very carefully, you can get very, very sick. Above 3,000 meters, you have to stop for a couple days and acclimate your body as you're going up. Every 500, 600, 1,000 meters, you have to stop for a couple days and let your body acclimate, or you can get very sick. Like, what, what kinds of things can happen? They say things like this. Um, you can get uh, altitude sickness can cause profoundly inhibited mental function, hallucinations, loss of muscle coordination, impaired speech, severe headache, nausea, or vomiting. They say that kind of altitude sickness, like hallucinations and things like that, can start above 3,000 meters. When you get above, they say, 7,500 to 8,000 meters, once you get above that, they call that the dead zone, and they say essentially the human body cannot survive in that dead zone, like above 7,500 or 8,000 meters. And so you are on, the climbers will tell you, you are on borrowed time. Like your body is starting to break down at that point, and it doesn't matter who you are, how acclimated you are, you just cannot, the pressure uh, up there is so small, you can only take in about 30% of the oxygen you can take at sea level. And when you're up there, if you, you climb to a certain height and you, you have to camp there, and if you're going to try and get to the top, you have to go to the top and get back as fast as possible because once you go over uh, 7,500 to 8,000 meters, your body is starting to die. So Mount Everest is the tallest mountain at over 8,800 meters tall, 
that means just even getting close to the summit itself is going to kill you. Now, when we bring in like the, what that means for, for you and me, like when we take this kind of, we, I can tell you about Mount Everest and read you the statistics, but it means something more when I say, okay, but let's put you on the summit and let's make it more personal. We're looking at a, a passage in the Bible. It's Psalm 139, and it's one of the most beautiful, powerful, rich chapters, I think, in, in all of the Bible. And here's what it does. It takes some of the loftiest ideas, the most transcendent, biggest ideas of who God is, but it doesn't just tell you, let me tell you about this big attribute of God. God is like this, and God is like this, and God is like this. It doesn't just tell you in kind of this cold, clinical, sterile kind of theological terms. It takes these truths about God, and it brings it all the way down into your life and shows you directly how it intersects with your life. It takes this, this huge transcendent ideas and makes them intimate. It's, that's what makes this passage so profound. Here's what it teaches us. It teaches us the more we know about the attributes of who God is, the more it affects your actual life and what you're going through right now. So for example, today, right now, this, this weekend, whatever your greatest stresses and concerns are. If there's any guilt that you're, you're sorting through, if there's any loneliness that you're sorting through, like whatever you're emotionally dealing with in your life right now, whether you realize it or not, it's colliding with what you believe about God. And so what this passage does that makes it so phenomenal is it doesn't just teach this kind of this theology kind of in a vacuum, these truths about God, it says this is who God is and this is what that means in your life. So understanding what this is teaching could be the very thing that, you, that, that helps with what you're dealing with and fighting through in your life right now. Let's dig into Psalm 139. If you have a Bible or a Bible app, if you would open to that, and here's what I'm going to do. I want to just read straight through the first six verses to kind of get an idea of what we're going to cover today. And then we're going to go back and kind of pick it apart um, a little bit at a time. So Psalm 139, we're going to start in verse 1. Here's what it says. <clears throat> to the choir master, a psalm of David. O Lord, you have searched me and known me. You know when I sit down and when I rise up. You discern my thoughts from afar. You search out my path and my lying down. You are acquainted with all my ways. Even before a word is on my tongue, behold, O Lord, you know it altogether. You hem me in behind and before. You lay your hand upon me. Such knowledge is too wonder wonderful for me. It is high. I cannot attain it. This is a, it's a beautiful psalm. What is a psalm? You, you saw like right in the very beginning, it says, to the choir master. It's a psalm of David. So the famous King David wrote this psalm, and he wrote it to the choir master. In other words, these are song lyrics. Like he wrote it in such a way that then handed it over to the choir master of Israel, 
and they're gonna, he was supposed to take this and turn this into a song. So if you were living a couple thousand years ago in, in Israel, you probably knew the sound of the music that went with this. You could probably hear the choirs of Israel singing through this. So that's one of the other things that makes this um, so powerful. I mean, it's, it's kind of showing off. It's not just theology. It's not just theology brought into our life. It's not just made as a poem. It's made as a song. That's how powerful this is. And it's talking through and it's, it's talking about these attributes of God. And I want to go back to just that very first verse. Look again what it says. It says, O Lord, you have searched me and known me. Now let's dig in on this a little bit. This word for know, like when it says, God, you know me, this word for know, you know, if you know, if you say, hey, do you know this person? You say, yeah, I know that person. There's a whole wide spectrum at which you might know someone, right? They may be like, you might mean like, I know of them. Yeah, I think I'm a, a Facebook friend of theirs or I'm a friend on social media. I kind of know them. I see their posts every now and then. You could say, yeah, I know them like they're an acquaintance. I know, or you could say, like, I, I know them, they're a friend. Or you can be like, no, I really, really, like, deeply know them. This word for God, you know me, is the most intimate word in the Hebrew language for a relationship. It's the, it is the most intimate word for relationship. So l- let's put it like this. I want you to think about the person in your life that knows you the best, like, just think about that for a second. I want you to put uh, one or two names in your mind. Who is the person that knows you the best, okay? They, like, have scary knowledge of you. Like, they know your past. They know all the skeletons in your closet, okay? They know your secrets. They know the good, the bad, and the ugly. They know the things that you wish they didn't know. But they also know your greatest victories, they know your, the, the things that you do well. They know the things that you don't do well. They know how your mind works. Like if you're sitting in a conversation, um, they, they might at some point in that conversation just kind of look over at you and you, your eyes kind of meet because they kind of know what you're thinking. They know how you're reacting to something else that's happening in that conversation. They can actually finish your sentences. You have like the same humor, like you have that, that same movie that you watched a lot and you, and you quote those jokes and you might even say them at the same time. Okay, that, that kind of no, like deep knowledge, like the person who knows you the best, like you're getting close to what this verb is trying to describe. And I want you to think, because look at how it's paired. It says, God, you've searched me and you know me. I want you to, to think about that person who you were just thinking of just then. Chances are that's a relationship that's been around for a long time, right? That's a, that's a relationship that you've had in, in matters of, of years, maybe decades, not weeks or months. And so what's happened is that they've gotten to know you. And whether they would think about it in these terms or not, they have searched you out. There's hours of conversations that have happened. There's hours of questions about your past and exploring each other's lives. There's road trips and, and there's adventures and there's experiences and there's, there's uh, victories and tragedies. I mean, you've been through a lot. You've really searched each other out. And here's what this is saying. This is saying, God, you have searched me and you deeply 
know me. You intimately know me. He searched out every sector of, of your personality, every sector of your history, every sector of your mannerisms and every, the way your brain works and your humor works and your speech pattern works. He has searched out all of that and deeply knows, intimately knows you. Well, how intimately does he know you? Well, here's, here's what he says. Let's keep going. Verse 2, this is what he says. You know when I sit down and when I rise up. You discern my thoughts from afar. You search out my path and my lying down. You're acquainted with all my ways. Even before a word is on my tongue, behold, O Lord, you know it all together. Let's break this out. He says, you know when I sit down and when I rise up. Now, this is, a, this is poetry, so what is he describing? He's like, you know when I sit down. You know when I'm passive and when I rise up, when I rise to action, you know my passivity and my activity. You know my leisure and my work. You know both sides of me. You know anything that I do, whether it's sitting or rising, whether it's stopping or going, you know every part of my external work. Now, I want you to think about that because have you ever known, had a friend that you've known really, really well and because maybe it's a friend at church and you know them really well and then one day you decide to meet them for lunch and you meet them at their work and all of a sudden you, you realize for the first time you've seen them at their place of work and it opens up like a whole other category for this person that you've never known before. You ever had that happen? Or maybe vice versa, it's a work friend and then for the first time you go over to their house for dinner and all of a sudden you, you like see them not in their work clothes. And you see them now, you see like the, the pictures on the wall and you see like their, their wedding picture from, a, from years ago and you're like, wow, you used to have a mustache. I didn't even know about that. And you see like, you know, the weird hairdo from back then and you see, you kind of get to know them in a, different, in, in a different venue. So this happened to me uh, recently. I was um, just, as, was my day off, I had the kids. We were, we were uh, at Publix. I put them both in that, the green race car shopping cart. You know what I'm talking about? And I'm in like shorts and a t-shirt and some flip-flops and I'm just going through the, the aisles and we get the free cookie and everything, okay? And it's just a, a, a happy day at Publix. And um, we're, we're going on and all of a sudden I see someone from church and someone who's been uh, coming to West Pines for a while but we don't really know each other well. And all of a sudden like, they kind of do this double take and like, oh, uh, Pastor Roby, I'm just not used to seeing you outside of church. And they're looking and I can tell they're looking at my shorts and I'm like, I know, sorry, it's depressing. That's why I don't wear shorts on stage. And... Um, I just didn't expect to see you here. And I'm thinking, you know, like, well, I'm a human. Like, I have to eat food, you know? We don't summon manna from heaven in the Barnes household. Like, we got to go shopping sometimes, you know? So, like, we, there's different sides of us. There's, like, the leisure rest side. Then there's, like, the, the active side. There's the sitting and the rising. And even the people we know best... Like, we typically see one side of them. Like, like, your spouse, like, how often, if you're married or your boyfriend or girlfriend, like, how often, or your sibling, as good as you know them, you might not really know the work side of them, right? Like, maybe like a work party or something like that. I mean, you, there's whole sides of people you know the best that you may not really know, you know, them very well on another side of them. But what God's saying is, I know when you sit and when you rise. I know your work side your home side, your vacation side, 
your leisure side, your hobby side. I know when what, what's public. I know what's private. I know everything you do. I know it all. I, I see all sides of you. You're sitting and you're rising. And I love what he pairs next. He says, I know when, you know when I sit and when I rise. And then he says, and you perceive my thoughts from afar. Here's a, it's almost like he's pairing these together. He's saying, I know externally everything you do, public or private, which no other human knows. But I also know internally what you're processing through. I know your external and your internal. I know your, your, your actions and your, even your thoughts. So in other words, think about the person that you know the best, and you're like, I can even predict what they're thinking. I mean, when we're saying that, like, we're kind of saying we have a vague idea of probably what they're thinking, but it's infallible, and uh, it's fallible, excuse me, and we'd have to be in the context. Whoever that person is that you feel like you know the best, if you don't know what they're thinking, like, right now, unless you're sitting next to them, I mean, if they're, like, in Iowa right now, you don't know what they're thinking, But God says, I even perceive your thoughts from afar. He says, I know you externally and I know you internally. I know everything you do on the outside and I even know your thoughts. Like I even know your motivations. I even know what you're thinking. And then he takes it a step further. He says, "Um, I, I know your paths and you're lying down. I've searched out your path." and you're lying down. Now, I want you to think about this because I think he's, he's taking the same idea and going bigger with it. When you sit down, that's temporary. And when you rise up, you're about ready to go do something. He takes that and he, he takes like a more permanent version of the same thing. When you lying down is more permanent than sitting down, right? And, and rising up to go it is not, it's not as, doesn't have as much longevity as your entire path. He's saying, I know immediately your actions when you're sitting down and you're rising up, but I also know you're lying down in your whole path. In other words, I know, this is, again, poetic language. He says, I know where you're fixed in life right now. I know the bed you're lying in, so to speak. Like, I know where you're at in life, but I also know your path, where you're going. I know the trajectory that you're on. I, it's, like, I don't, it's not just that I'm watching the micro level of your life, I know the macro level of your life, all the nuances. But let's take it a step further. This is interesting. It, he says, you've searched out my path and my lying down. The actual Hebrew word there is you've winnowed my path and my lying down. Winnowed. Well, what's winnowed? Winnowed is an agricultural term, which is why 98% of you are looking at me like, I have no idea what that term means, okay? You'd have to uh, be around, um, uh, in, in these days, a third world country harvesting grain. And the idea of winnowing um, is something that still happens to happen all through history in every culture that grows grain, and it still happens to this day. Winnowing or sifting a grain is taking the, the grain and it's separating this filament that's extremely delicate, but it's covering the grain. It's called the chaff, and you want that off. It's not something you want to eat. It's just like these very delicate fibers, but it's too intricate to peel off by hand, but you need to get the chaff off the grain, so you sift it or you winnow 
the grain. So depending on the grain, it could look like this. It could be a big pile of grain that you've got, like a pitchfork, and you're tossing it up in the air. And what they want to do is they want to get the wind blowing through the grain as it's going up and following, f falling, and it's blowing the chaff, which is a complete waste. It's blowing that away. So you, you would winnow it up in the air. You, you kind of sift it up in the air. Another way you, you might take, if it's smaller grain, you might take a basket and you might flip it up in the air like this. Or you might stand up on something and you might drop it on the ground and scoop it up and drop it and you're letting it fall, which is breaking up the chaff, and then the wind is blowing through it and blowing it away. So here's what God is literally saying here. He's saying, you've sifted my life. Not just where I'm at, but where I'm going. You've separated it, the pieces out. You've separated the pieces of this is valuable and, and this is worthless. This is healthy and this is destructive. This is something you want to keep. This is something you, you should peel off. This is something that's godly and life-giving and this is something that is evil or sinful or wrong and it's destructive. He says, you don't just know it, you've sifted through it. You know the pieces in my life, where I'm lying right now, where I'm, the place that I'm fixed in right now, you've sifted through it. You know the pieces in my life that are broken and are just bringing destruction into my life and the pieces that are healthy that I should keep. And you see the trajectory. You see the, the path that I'm going and where I'm going. You see the pieces that are healthy and the pieces that are unhealthy, the pieces that are sinful and the pieces that are godly. The pieces that are going to bring destruction to my life and my relationships and the things that are going to save my, my life and my relationships. You've sifted through all of that. You know all of that part of my life. You know not just the immediate actions, you know on a micro level of sitting and standing. You know kind of the macro level of what I'm doing with my life. And of this one, he says, um, you know, you're acquainted with all of my ways. You know all of my ways, the good and the bad and the ugly. And then he says, and before a word is on my tongue, you know it completely. I love that he pairs these two things together. He, he first pairs the outer man sitting in, in, uh, and rising with thoughts, the inner man. But then he, he, he pairs our life, all of our ways, the macro level, what we're doing with our life, with our words. Because he doesn't, he doesn't just know what we're saying we're doing. He knows actually what we're doing. We might be able to convince ourselves and anyone else that what's good and bad about our life, but he actually sifted through it and he knows. He knows every word that comes on our tongue, but, but here's, it takes it a step further. He knows it before we say it. So think of it like this. Even the most closest relationship, I want you to take that person in your mind that you say, I could finish their sentences or they could finish my sentences. But as you know, I mean, what percentage of conflict in relationships, like what percentage of that is built on misunderstanding? Like you said something and they thought that this is what you meant by that. And then if you ever actually get to sit down and reconcile, you say, no, that's not what I meant. I meant this. And like what percentage of, of friction and conflict in relationship comes to misunderstanding? There could be no misunderstanding with God. He knows what you're going to say before you say it, and he knows what's behind it. He actually knows what you mean better than you do. 
He actually knows your motivation. Like when you say something off the cuff and you try and say, no, this is not what I meant, he actually knows if it is what you meant or not. I mean, he knows you so intimately, even before a word is on, on your tongue, it says you know it completely. He thoroughly knows your heart. He thoroughly knows every... He, it's not that he can predict it. He knows its source and what you're going to say. That's how deeply he knows you. Now look at verse 5. He, he continues on here. Look, look what he says. This is a really interesting imagery. He says this, <clears throat> Psalm 139, verse 5. Let's read it. He says, you hem me in behind and before and lay your hand upon me. Now this, you say, okay, what does it mean to hem me in? What does that mean? It, it also could be translated like he hedges you in. In other words, uh, um, literally, like the most literal rigid translation would be he encircles you which is really interesting because there's two different senses that this word is used and they're kind of polar. On one sense, he encircles you, he hedges you in. Have you ever heard the phrase like a hedge of protection? And it's in that sense, he's encircling you like he's protecting you and he's wrapping around you and encircling you that way. But what's interesting about this word is it's also the same word for when you're surrounded, like as in an enemy army surrounding the city like if they're saying yeah you're being besieged you're holed up you're, you're you're being sieged in a city and you're holed up in there and the enemy has got you surrounded you'd use this word so he's wrapped around you his power is all around you and you might be left to say okay is this a good thing or a bad thing and that second phrase helps define it he says and you've laid your hand upon me which is a phrase of tenderness. Because his power could dominate you, but it's a protective hedge around you. He, he knows you 180 degrees. He knows you 365 degrees, actually. He knows you all, all, all the way around. Is it 365 or is it just 360? 360, but he knows you 365, okay? <laughs> Don't push my theology, all right? 365, all right. He knows you all the way around. It's the point I'm trying to make, all right? A full circle. He knows you all the way around. He knows every side of you. you. You can't keep a side hidden from him. He's completely around you and he's protective of you all the way around. And he, and, and he uses that to have like a hand of favor on you. He uses that protectively. There's a warmth when he says, you've laid your hand upon me. There's a warmth there. Okay, what is this all describing about God? Like he's talking about how God is interacting with you, specifically. He's talking about how he, what specifically, if God is who he is, how that intersects with your life. But what is this attribute of God that he's talking about? It's describing God's knowledge. It's describing that God is all-knowing. It's describing, it's actually laying out theology for you. And if we were to put it in a, like, a technical theological term, the term would be omniscience is how it's being described. It, omniscience, there's several words that describe God that are attributes of God that start with this prefix 
omni, which is the Latin for all or whole. And so if we were to talk about this in kind of a, a sterile, wooden, clinical way, this, this psalm would say God is all-knowing, he's omniscient, there's nothing that God doesn't know. But what's so beautiful about this passage right here is that it doesn't just say, let's talk about God. Let me tell you how all-knowing he is. He knows everything and, and pick it apart. What does that philosophically mean? Is there anything that he, he can't not know? And let's, let's kind of debate it back philosophically. It says, no, I'm not going to handle it like this. It takes it a step further. I want to teach you his omniscience by showing you how that plays out in his life, in your life. If God, by definition, is all-knowing and omniscient, then that means he knows everything about you. And it's taking this doctrine, this theology, this truth about God and saying, okay, let's, let's make this intimate. He knows everything about you. And so we come to verse 6. And here's what verse 6 in Psalm 139 says. It says, such knowledge is too wonderful for me. It is high, I cannot attain it. It says that, no, the, that kind of knowledge, like trying to get my brain around how you are all-knowing and the intimacy with which you know me, man, that is beyond my capacity to understand. You know, the word wonderful can have a couple different senses. Wonderful can mean like, man, like that's really, really good. Like I really like it. Like how wonderful. Or it can mean more like the strict sense of like full of wonder. That's the sense it's meaning. It's saying, man, when I try and, and comprehend your omniscience, when I try and comprehend that you're all-knowing, and then what that means in my life, that is, is so beyond my ability to comprehend. That's unbelievable. When I take that truth and don't just talk about it statistically, but I bring it into my life, like I can't comprehend that. Like, let's just think about this for a second. The very first verse in this chapter says, Lord, you've searched me. Can we just talk about these, the two parties involved here? Can we just talk about, like, just God for a second? Who is this that knows you? Every side of you. Every action you've ever done in private or public. Every thought that you've ever had. The motive behind every word and every word. The season of life you're in and where you're going. And sees it perfectly. Who, who is the one that knows you more intimately, far more intimately than the closest friend, sibling, spouse, parent that you could think of? It says that this one, this being, it says that at first, there was, there was nothing. And then he spoke, and light came into existence. And I want you just to think about that. Like, for the first time, there's such a thing as energy and, and light. When you think about light, I mean, think about the, the fury of the sun and how we have to be 93 million miles away because if we get any closer, we disintegrate. And I want you to think of that first furious explosion of light that would utterly dwarf our 
small to mid-sized star that we can't get within 93 million miles of. I want you to think that of, of that first explosion of energy and light into the world that was so furious. We can't even, it's not, it could not be compared to any kind of nuclear explosion or anything we could conceive of. It's such a powerful explosion of energy as light came into existence that it would utterly dwarf anything we could conceive of. Like all stars, like the, the largest stars that are even bigger than our solar system, they, they were birthed out of that moment. And that all happened because this being spoke it. That's who knows you. How intimately does he know you? How vast is his knowledge? A couple years ago, um, the, the Kepler, uh, the uh, Hubble uh, telescope uh, found a star that they've named um, the Kepler, I'm sorry, they found a planet that they're naming the Kepler 186f. It was a couple years ago. What's so fascinating about this um, planet is that it's orbiting a smaller star, but they say it's in the habitable zone. So, so it, and it's similar to the size of Earth. And this is kind of what they're looking for. Like, are there any other Earth-like planets out there in our galaxy? And so they found this one. It's like 500 light years away from Earth. They don't even know if it's got a, like a, a rock-type surface or not, but they just know that it's in an, a habitable zone and it's about the size of Earth. But imagine like sometime in the future, if they could put some kind of rover on there or they could, they could put some kind of probe, like what, what would it be like on this planet? Can you imagine how foreign it would be? I mean, what if that atmosphere, like the way that it reflects the light of its sun, like the, the colors that it sends through, like what if the, the sky is perpetually green? Like, what, what if the way it reflects off the sands and the dust and the dirt is the ground just, it has different strange hues of purple and red, and it's just this utterly foreign planet, like the periodic table is completely different. I mean, can you imagine if it started sending images and video back uh, over 500 light years back to Earth one day, if they could actually see this, this unbelievably foreign planet? But you know, God knows that planet like it's his neighborhood, like there's no far distant part of the universe or the galaxy that's like strange and new and mysterious. Like as well as you know your own home, Kepler 186f is just as familiar to him. And so is every other, that's only 500 light years away. I mean, so is every other planet and star and solar system and galaxy in the universe. He knows it all intimately. That is who the Lord is and that's the one who knows you intimately like no one else knows you. He is all-knowing and he's all-knowing about who you are. In fact, I love that it says he's, it's not just he knows you because he can't help it. He searched you out and knows you. So how do we, I mean, what are we supposed to do with that kind of knowledge? How, how do we bring that down into earth? Can, can you just think about this with me? That means anything going on in your life right now, he deeply, thoroughly knows. And just that in and of itself can dispel a lot of the emotion that ties with it. Okay, let, let, let's dig into this for a second. 
the, one of the most, the most intimate way we interact with God is when we pray to him and we have to clear space and clear distraction to engage him in prayer. But enter into like, okay, if this is how you know me, how does that change how I pray to God? Like how does this change how I interact if he deeply knows every thought, word, action, every part of my life? If he deeply knows me, how does that change how I interact with God, who is this one that I'm praying to? How does this change? And I want to give you two things to think about. First of all, in your prayer life, it's familiarity. It should be familiarity, not formality. Have you ever noticed that sometimes um, when we pray, like we feel like all of a sudden we have to like button our shirt up real, you know, straight and like all of a sudden, man, my shirt's not ironed and I'm about to pray and all of a sudden we kind of go into like Shakespearean mode, Okay. You know what I'm talking about? Can you imagine if you called like your best friend and they picked up the phone and you're like, how art thou this fine morn today? Dude, are you okay, man? You have a nervous breakdown? Like what's going on over there? Why? Because they know that's not how you talk. When you're talking to, to God, sometimes there's this instinct to get formal. And all of a sudden, oh Lord of hosts whose glory sprinkles down like the rains upon the meadow. God's like, dude, are you all right, man? Like, you just, there's some short circuit going on in, in your brain. Okay, well, what's going on? He knows you. He knows every word. He knows how you talk to your friends. He knows how you talk to your family. He's heard every word. He knows it before you said it. Here's what, you, there's no need for formality in prayer with the person who knows you that intimately. He is familiar with you at a level of familiarity you can't really grasp. So you don't have to shift into another mode of formality. Be you. Like your prayer, think of it like this. There is no other sector of your life that you should feel more freely to be you than when you're communicating in prayer to God. That should be the most intensely you because he already knows you. But there's a balance to this. It's familiarity, not formality, but here's the other side, is it's familiarity, not flippancy. The other side is that we forget who he is and we forget that he's the almighty God. Yes, he is absolutely familiar with who we are, but yes, he's also the one that's holding your molecules together. Yes, he is the one that deeply knows everything and you can be you in front of him, but yes, he is also the almighty God who deserves the worship and praise and honor of everything that's in existence. Yes, it doesn't mean that we're irreverent and flippant and forget who we're speaking to. Yes, there's, it's the only relationship that operates quite like this. It's not flippancy. We take it seriously, but it is familiarity. So when you come into the presence of God, we're reminded who he is, but at the same time reminded of how deeply he knows us. You can be you in the most intimate possible way. What this means, this familiarity, means that this is the most vulnerable you can be. You can admit things in prayer that you're struggling to admit to yourself, let alone to anyone else. That means, that think of it like this, there is nothing off limits in prayer. Yeah, what if I'm angry at God? What if I'm shaking my fist and curse at God? Like, I mean, that's got to be off limits, right? But he knows what's in your heart. 
you're not exposing him to anything he doesn't already know. Maybe the communication is, is less about disclosure to God and more about admitting what's really going on. See, there's an unbelievable vulnerability. Now watch how this works in our life. You know, sometime if we're struggling with guilt and shame, that feeling is perpetuated when we're not admitting it and we're trying to fight it off. No, I don't really think that's really that bad, or no, I couldn't tell anyone, and when you can't feel like you can disclose it. But when you realize God already knows because he was there with you and saw everything that happened and the intentions of your heart, there is an incredible freeing, releasing of guilt and shame when you say, God, I need to confess something you already know. I just need to get this off my chest. I did this, I thought this, I said this, or I didn't do this, think this, or say this, and this was wrong. And you release it to God. Tell me what I need, what's the next steps, how do I need to make this right? He's dealing with that in your life. The, the, the feelings of loneliness that you might be struggling with right now, do you realize there's someone that knows you more intimately than you can grasp, how could you ever be alone? Run to him in prayer in the seasons of loneliness. Spend time with him. Saying, God, I need to talk this out in my life that I'm struggling with. Like, he knows you so deeply. Or what about the, the stresses in your life? The anxieties, the concerns. Have you ever noticed that when you're, when you're really stressed out and you sit down with a friend and you just really talk it out, how something is just released? Well, you know you can talk it through God who knows what you're actually dealing with, what's swirling around in your heart and actually knows the circumstances even better than you do and, by the way, can actually do something to affect change. You've got all the pieces you need and the intimacy with God and, when you, and, and really all of those things that you may be struggling with emotionally, they're colliding with just simply, what do you believe about God? How deeply and intimately does he know you? Maybe the problem is we're just not taking advantage of a relationship with a God who knows us that intimately. You know, when you think about this, he says, this knowledge and, and what David says is, man, that's too wonderful for me, it's too lofty. And maybe your instinct is you say, actually, that knowledge that God has seen and sees everything I do and is with me at every moment and hears every thought and every word, that's actually scary. I'm not sure I'd say that's wonderful. I might say that I'm a little terrified by the fact that he's always with me, always seeing, always knowing. And if that's how you're feeling, then you have to know this other side. You know, what Jesus said, it, he summarized this whole idea when he taught us how to pray. And he said it like this, our Father who is in heaven. He is in heaven. He's this transcendent, almighty God, but he's intimate like a father. He's transcendent in heaven, but he is immediately in our presence He's transcendent and eminent. He's, he's lofty, but he's intimate. He's right there in our presence. And how is he our loving father? It's simply, yes, he sees everything. Imagine it like this. He sees everything that you've ever done and everything you've ever thought and every flaw and every weakness. And yet he says, and I still love you so much more than you can imagine. You can't imagine the depth and the height and the breadth of my love for you.
He says, as high as the heavens are above the earth, if you were to fill this universe with molecules of love, it would fill the universe. That's how great my love is for you. He loves you and he knows you. How, does, how is it possible that he loves you so much even though we're all so flawed? It's that he loves you so much Jesus Christ came down to earth. He was crucified on a cross. Jesus, the Son of God, came to earth. He lived a perfect life. But he surrendered himself on the cross to die. Why? That death was God taking all the punishment for our sin on himself. He paid the punishment for all our sin, past, present, and future. He rose again from the dead, defeating death fully paying for sin, and says, look, if you just accept that death and resurrection on your behalf, you'll be washed clean, forever forgiven. And God says, I have no anger or wrath left for you, is exhausted on the cross. All I have left is my fatherly, intimately love, my intimate love. He says, if you want that kind of forgiveness, you just simply say, yes, I accept what Jesus did for me. You might be here and you might be saying, look, I need to do that today. I just want to find forgiveness. I want to make it right with my creator. He knows me. He's with me. And I'm ready to make it right because I want to have that intimate, loving relationship with my heavenly father. And if that's the decision you want to make, you can take that step right now. And you can be, do that with a simple prayer of acceptance. And if that's you, I want to give you the opportunity to pray that. Would you bow your heads and close your eyes today? If you want to pray that simple prayer and be reconnected to your heavenly father, then just Say these words right there, right there in your seat. He knows every word before you say it. He knows what's in your heart. So say these words in your heart to God. Make these words yours. Say this in your heart. God, thank you for knowing me, but thank you for loving me. Thank you that Jesus died on the cross for me, rose again. Thank you that he paid for my sin so that I can be permanently forgiven. Thank you for wanting to walk through life with me. Say, I surrender my life to you. I'm ready to walk in an intimate relationship with you. Thank you for saving me in Jesus' name. Amen. Thank you for listening. For more resources and to check out other teaching series, please visit our website at westpines.org. If you would like to speak to somebody about beginning a relationship with Jesus or ask any questions you have about this teaching, please call at 954-432-0321 or you can email us at podcast at westpines.org.